Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, let me start uh, by praying for us. Father, as we have uh, heard and said and seen and sung and prayed already this morning, when you come to us, it's like light that comes into darkness. And so we ask that that would be true as we read your word together and talk about it and think about it, that we would experience it as your light coming into our darkness. So you know that some of us are here this morning and we're ready for that and we're longing for that. Others of us here this morning feel indifference toward your, indifferent toward your presence in our life. Some of us are wondering if darkness is really the right word for who we are. Um, so Father, meet every one of us in the place where we are, in faith or outside of faith, and show us the grace of Jesus and show that grace to us as light that shines into the darkness. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, well, if you were here uh, a few weeks ago on the first week of Advent, you might remember that I asked uh, every one of us here uh, to think about something uh, in our lives that we wish were different. Uh, something maybe that you're struggling with in your life or something that is out there in the world that isn't right. Uh, it could be maybe a situation at work or with a child or a parent or maybe a situation with a friend. It could be something that's going wrong in your studies. Maybe it is a bout with depression. Maybe it's some news you heard from your doctor. Um, and I ask all of us to think about something like that personally in our own lives so that we could begin to ask God how to show us, to, to show us how the advent of Jesus speaks directly to that thing. Uh, I promise you that it does. I promise you that Jesus coming, which is what we celebrate, what we anticipate, what we hope for at Advent, I promise you that his coming speaks to it. The Apostle Paul says that God is reconciling all things to himself in Jesus, and all things means all things, including whatever it is that you and I are facing. So I hope that those of us who were here a couple weeks ago have been thinking about that thing and, and praying about it and asking God about it. And if, if you weren't here, that's no problem. You can just take a second to think about something in your own life right now. And there's no doubt that whatever any of us are thinking about is there in our lives because we live in a world that is not yet as it should be. It is a world that's broken by sin, and we are a people who have been broken by sin. So this passage from the book of James that we're going to look at this morning speaks directly to that. And it addresses one of the most important things that people like us need to be cultivating in our Advent anticipation and hope, and that is patience. So let me read from James 5 for us, and you can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed, or you can follow along in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read. I'm going to read... Uh, James 5, verses 7 through 11. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. 
Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering with patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. So I just want to say at the outset that patience is hard. I think that we all uh, need to acknowledge that right from the start. Patience is really hard. Uh, in the November issue of The Atlantic, there was an article uh, about a guy named Tristan Harris. And this guy, Tristan Harris, used to be a product philosopher uh, at Google. Uh, I was kind of surprised that such a thing even existed. And honestly, I don't know whether to be terrified or reassured that these big tech companies hire product philosophers. Uh, anyhow, he left Google and did a bunch of other things, and now he has started to wage a uh, quiet war against what he calls manipulative software design. Um, that's the, uh, the kind name, that's the negative name for it. There is a more kind or benign name for it. It's the name of the people who do these kind of software applications. They just call it behavior design. He says uh, that these big tech companies are pushing every single day to create, to refine, to create again, to refine again apps and software that hack into human psychology in order to expose our vulnerabilities. These companies, uh, he says, are in a race to the bottom of our brain stems. In other words, this is what he's saying, that there's lots of apps and lots of software out there that make us want to look at them all of the time. And maybe more importantly than that, to make us feel like we are missing something important, like maybe we're losers if we are not looking at them all of the time. So this is why uh, so many of us, if we're honest, will admit we are pretty much addicted, borderline addicted to those little phones in our pockets. It's good to ask why is this happening. That's, that's at least part of what that article was about. It's pretty easy why it's happening because other companies will shower money at other companies who are able to get our attention. There's a lot of money to be made, and that's pretty obvious. But I'm, I'm much more interested in, in what this exposes uh, about us. People like us in places like this are addicted to instant gratification. As a people, as a culture, we've moved from, from being really happy at instant gratification to now almost seeing it as our right, something that we are owed, right? Remember, there, there was first there was Amazon Prime. Get your stuff in two days. Amazing. But you know, now it's Prime now. Prime now. If you can think about it, you can get it in a couple hours. Patience is hard, and it is becoming harder for us. Some of you have probably seen that uh, Louis C.K. bit about um, getting impatient with our phones when the search results don't pop up instantly, right? If you've seen it, you know what he says. He's like, give it a minute. It's going to space for you. 
you know? Just give it a minute. Well, the passage that we just read and heard together is one of the most theologically rich and deeply practical give-it-a-minutes that you will read in the New Testament. And of course, James isn't talking about search results or likes on social media or getting a spatula delivered to your front door really fast. He's talking about the stuff that really matters. He's talking about living in the middle of whatever we are facing and desperately wishing that it were different. So here's how he starts. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient. He just starts with be patient. That is a bracing line for people like us. Be patient for the advent of Jesus. Now, of course, James is not talking about the advent of Jesus as a baby in the manger at Bethlehem. He is talking about the advent that Jesus himself describes as when the Son of Man comes in his glory with all of his angels with him. James is talking about Jesus' second advent when he comes to judge, as we say in the creed, the living and the dead. When he comes to establish perfectly the justice and peace that we and the whole world were made for. When Jesus comes a second time to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. When he comes to redeem our bodies. He is talking about Jesus' gracious healing presence. Making, as Isaiah the prophet puts it, making the knowledge of the Lord fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. That day, church, that day is coming. And I think it's really important for us to know that James is telling his friends this for a reason. He's asking them to be patient for a reason. Starting with the martyrdom of Stephen, the churches that he is writing to have experienced consistent uh, persecution, consistent and incessant persecution. When James is writing this letter to them, they are not too far off from that time when Christians would be put on stakes and set ablaze to light the boulevards of Rome or thrown to the animals for entertainment. So they're facing persecution, but it's not just persecution that they're facing. They're also facing a social injustice. The the first part of James 5, which you should read later on, The first part of James 5 is one of the most hair-raising denunciations of the rich who defraud their laborers and live lives of indulgence on the backs of the poor that you will probably ever read in any source, Christian or non-Christian, ancient or modern. That's who James is writing to. These are the poor. He is writing to the poor who had been taken advantage of. So they had plenty, plenty of reasons to hope for more. Plenty of reasons to hope for something better. What they're facing is real. And it's just as important to acknowledge that there is no quick fix for these things. If you let me put it like this, there is no prime now for injustice or persecution. And the same thing is true for whatever it is that, we, that we're facing. You know, maybe you've been thinking about or praying about or asking God about a important relationship in your life that has been damaged. There's no button to click for the healing of a relationship. There's no button to click for the restoration of what has been lost between two people. Things that really, really matter in our lives never work like that, no matter how much we want them to. 
Or maybe you've been thinking about, praying about, talking to God this Advent about uh, an area of injustice present in our city that you just can't get out of your head. Well, you know there is never a quick fix for those things either. You know, you can't just post a really good article about it on social media and just think, man, if everyone reads this thing or thinks this way, if everyone does this thing, everything will be fine. These things require flesh and blood. They require our action. They require living in the long game that we call the true story of the world. They require patience. And so, to people like us, James says, be patient. He uses the farmer as an example of the kind of patience that he means here. The farmer waits, he says, for the precious fruit of the earth. It's not that the farmer doesn't do anything, but once the seeds are in the ground, the farmer just has to wait. And church, it is not a failure to wait. There is no problem in waiting. Sometimes waiting is just absolutely necessary, like when we wait for wounds to heal or we wait to recover from a surgery. Life does not move at the speed of our desires. And behind that truth is the deeper truth, and that is that often, very often in fact, God doesn't move at the speed of our desires. He doesn't seem to follow our preferred timetable. And that, that is the real problem for us, isn't it? Well, we'll come back to that. But in case we imagine that James' idea of patience is exhausted by simply waiting, he comes at it from another angle. He comes at patience this way. He says, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Establish your hearts. From this angle, patience as seen, is seen as an active participation in the long game. It is moving towards something with intention. Luke, uh, the gospel writer, uses the same word that James uses here for establish your hearts when he says in his gospel that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Well, if you know Luke's gospel, you know that Luke, that Jesus didn't just go to Jerusalem right then. He didn't just run off to Jerusalem. There was so much to be said and preached and done and prayed and, and taught. It was months, maybe even years after Jesus set his face to Jerusalem that he finally arrived there for his final week. Jesus' life was, you know, to borrow Eugene Peterson's reworking of Nietzsche's phrase, Jesus' life was a long obedience in the same direction. John Glenn, the astronaut, died last week. In case you don't know, he was the first person to orbit the Earth. He was also a Presbyterian, by the way, so that's a nice little bonus. Anyhow, you know John Glenn didn't just wake up in February of 1962 and say, you know what, I'm going to orbit the Earth in a tiny piece of metal strapped to a huge rocket shot into space. In order to get to that place, John Glenn had, had worked and flown and fought his way through 18 years of mental and physical rigor that most of us could hardly imagine. He has set, had set his face to be first. He had established his heart to be first. It was a long obedience in one direction, the same direction. 
That's the kind of thing that James is talking about here. That's the kind of patience he means. And I think that's why he uses the prophets as an example. He says, as an example of patience and suffering, take the prophets who spoke the word of the Lord. You know, if you haven't, you should really read the prophets sometime. They were astounding. And a lot of times it's not what they said, although that's incredibly beautiful and you can't believe it sometimes. But it's also what they did to get their points across. For instance, you may not know this, Ezekiel, the prophet, laid on his side for 400 days almost in front of a little model of Jerusalem under siege that he had made. He cooked his food over, I don't even want to tell you what. He laid there for 400 days as an act of holy street theater, pointing to the coming downfall of Jerusalem. And I'm sure that most people for that 400 days that saw him, they ignored him or they thought he was nuts. Maybe some of them didn't even notice him at all. That's the kind of stuff the prophets did. And for James, the prophets weren't just an intellectual example to be pondered. They were an example to be emulated and to be followed. Man, I don't know if James imagined that his people would do what Ezekiel did or something like it, but I do know that he imagined they would speak the truth to power like he had just done to the rich who defrauded the poor. The prophets were not docile. They did not sit in a corner. They did not wring their hands. They were blunt and wildly creative and active. They called kings to heal, and sometimes they died for it. They set their faces towards God's promises of a future. They established their hearts towards this promise of a future that God had given them. And they did whatever they needed to do in the meantime to live in light of it and to call everyone else around them to live in light of it. That's what James is suggesting about patience. Sometimes it's waiting. And sometimes it's a little bit more of a militant waiting, setting our hearts working actively towards the promise of the future that God has made us. You know, I don't know what that thing is that you've been thinking and praying and asking God about. I don't know what's in your head or in your heart. Um, so let me go back to one of the things that I mentioned earlier as an example for how this works. You know, there, there is no quick fix to violence in our city. It won't be gone completely until Jesus comes to remake this place. And he will come. And he will remake this place. And it will be heartbreakingly beautiful. And that is the future to which Chicago is headed. But we can't make that happen at the speed of our desires. There are lots of things, though, that we can do that point towards that future, that participate in that future, that bring that future into the present, right? We can start by just getting to know the neighbors that live on our block. Just find out their names and hear their stories. Where have they come from? Who are they? Where are they going? We can go to the beat meetings on our blocks. We can volunteer time with organizations like By the Hand. You know what By the Hand does? It does a ton of stuff, and it boils down to painting a future that could be different for at-risk kids. We could teach. We could be administrators in schools that are filled with at-risk kids. We could volunteer our time 
and our money to the schools that work with at-risk kids. I mean, the list could go on. And I know that there are some of you, maybe many of you here this morning, who could really dream big about this, and you do, and you act accordingly. That's how it works. The same is true for whatever it is in our own lives that we wish were different. There is a way, I promise you, there is a way to be actively patient in whatever it is, to be militantly patient. There is a way to set our faces and establish our hearts toward the healing, towards the redemption, towards the reconciliation that we're hoping for. And part of growing up as a Christian is asking God for the wisdom to see what we can do on his timetable and then doing it. The alternative, the alternatives are never good. James mentions one of them. He says, don't grumble against one another. I think it is so great that he mentions that here because when our hearts are disordered and messed up, it's not too long before our tongues, our speech becomes disordered and messed up. So incredibly common for an anxious and impatient and restless people to turn on each other rather than actively working together towards hope. Right? When we are in those moments and feeling troubled and anxious and impatient, we need someone, we need something to blame for the problems around us. And for lack of a long view of the true story of the world, we start blaming each other. We get irritable, we complain, we get into self-pity. We just become fussy, twitchy people. It's as hurtful as it is, as it is common. But James imagines something very, very different for the church. He imagines what Luke Timothy Johnson calls a community of solidarity that resists the temptation to turn on each other and that instead works together towards the future that God has promised us in the second advent of Jesus. Church, we are always stronger together than we are alone. But there's another reason I love that James brings up grumbling here, and that's because it it points to one of the biggest things that drives our impatience. I don't know about you, but when I grumble about things, it's because I imagine that I know better. You know, that I have a better plan, that I have a better approach to things. It's, it's at its essence a remarkably prideful position to stake out. I know best. We, we know best. Which brings us back to what we talked about earlier, about God not moving at the speed of our desires. Our impatience is often funded by imagining that we have a better approach than God does, that we know better than he does. I know we wouldn't say that. <laughs> We would never really speak that out loud. But if we were in charge of writing the script, our marriage problems would get sorted out really quick. And that depression wouldn't creep back so often and the kids would just listen the first time we said something and I would get into that relationship that I'm longing for sooner and I'd stop struggling with that one sin really quick and I wouldn't be so sad for this long and my employment situation would improve tomorrow if we were writing the script. And James knows this, so he ends by reminding his friends of something that's incredibly important, not just for them, but for us. He holds up the Old Testament character of Job as an example of someone who was steadfast under the face of some, in the face of some pretty awful, pretty terrible stuff. 
And then he reminds the church, you have seen the purpose of God. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. In other words, no matter what is happening in this little teeny tiny slice of the true story of the world that we are looking at right now, it always ends, that story always ends with healing and redemption for God's people. We only see this little teeny tiny part of the true story of the world and even that we see all blurry. But we have got to remember the story always ends with healing and redemption. We usually can't see why we're going through whatever it is we're facing when we're facing it. It doesn't make sense to us in the way that we want it to make sense to us. We would like some answers to some questions. And to people like us, James says, here is the deeper truth that we believe by faith. That God works purposefully through our suffering. That he is doing something. And it is something with a purpose when we suffer. His intention for us always, always, is compassion and mercy. And church, that love that he has for us will not be thwarted. Part of learning patience and and in that way, part of growing up in our faith is believing that this is true and in humility, submitting to it. Just saying we don't know the whole story and how it works out. We only know how it ends. So I can be patient and trust you. Now, most of us, starting with the preacher, I can tell you the truth, have to ask God for grace to be able to do that every day. And you know that would be an amazing thing for us to pray for together this season of Advent. And here's the good news. It's not as if God working purposefully through suffering is something that's opaque to us. It's not as if that is something that's difficult to understand. He's shown us precisely how that works, precisely what it's like, because he did it for us. This is the mystery. This is the gift of the first advent. Jesus for us as one of us. Suffering so that we could have forgiveness and life and hope. So be patient. Let me pray for us. Father, you know better than any of us here that we live in a culture and we are a people um, who are wildly intolerant of waiting. It makes us restless. It makes us anxious. It turns us into twitchy, complaining people. So, Father, do whatever you need to do by the power of your Spirit to teach us patience. Help us to look on Jesus who set his face to Jerusalem to endure suffering for us. Help us to learn patience and to learn that patience that is sometimes waiting and to learn that to that patience that is active and militant towards the future that you have promised us in Jesus. Father, please do this for our good and do this for the good of the broken world around us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.
Please stand with me.